this week on the Backtable Podcast. A simple analogy that just kind of a visual that I, I think is a good reference point for physicians, especially as they get further along you know, in their careers. And I talk about it with my children and I say, you know, an iceberg, I said a very small portion of the iceberg actually sticks out above the water that you can see. I said, but they're very stable. It's really hard to tip over a big iceberg because there's so much underwater. And I said, that's the way that I want my clients' financial situations to be. That's the way I want our financial situation to be. Wealth can pop out in certain spots, but if all the wealth is on the surface for everybody to see and there's nothing below it, it's a very unstable situation. And that tends to lead to stress and anxiety, burnout. And so I, I think that's kind of a good visual for people to look at their own situation. What's your iceberg look like? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Backtable ENT Podcast, where we discuss all things ENT and more. We bring you the best and the brightest in our field. But for today, I have invited a non-physician, but an expert in financial well-being, specifically for physicians. As always, our goal is for you to take something from our show to your practice. Hi, everyone. My name is Julie Wei. I'm excited to guest host this episode. I'm a pediatric ENT who's taken a pause from clinical practice due to recent medical disability, but I've been passionate about physician well-being for over a decade. So with me today, I'm so excited to invite Mr. Marshall Gifford. Hi, Marshall. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's not common that we have a non-ENT on this podcast channel, but do you mind telling our audience a little bit about yourself? I know you're a financial advisor, obviously, kind of why you are doing that and just your business. Sure. I live in Fort Myers, Florida with my wife and my sophomore in high school. And I've got two kids that are still up in Minnesota, which is where I actually built the business over the last 29 years. Yeah, I, I had a goal back when I started of building a financial consulting business. And I knew in my hometown that you know the physicians all lived up on a specific hill with the implement dealer. And I thought, hey, if I'm going to build a business, it seems like physicians make some money. And so if you're going to be a financial advisor, you got to work with some people that actually have a, have a means to do something you know, with the advice. They're recommending, and I happen to be near the University of Minnesota Medical School and Dental School, where I do a lot of work as well. And so I launched a business basically working with medical and dental students, which made no money, with a vision of growing it into something down the road as these people matured and eventually had bigger concerns. But I had very few expenses coming out, so I made very little to begin with, and have just grown with my clients. And it's just been a really fun ride to see people go from a lot of student loan debt to doing really, really well and being financially independent. So it's a little bit of history, yeah. But of course, as you know, I say it respectfully, right? Financial advisors are a dime a dozen. They're all out there. And I'm excited for our audience to know why I specifically wanted to invite you to our show today, because we're going to focus on financial well-being for physicians. Why do docs make bad choices? But really, in a very compassionate way, we're going to explore what we're both passionate about from different perspectives, because financial well-being is a big subject that is relevant for me, for all my colleagues. But back to what you said about Minnesota, I think our audience may be interested to know how we got connected because I met you, what, in 1997? 1997 at the Mayo Clinic. Yeah, at the Mayo Clinic. I know you do a lot of work with trainees, residents and fellows. So do you want to just share a little bit about, I don't have really strong memories, right? I think I met you through some educational events, perhaps. I've always had a passion for helping people early in their career. And that's because you know, Einstein said compound interest is the eighth wonder 
of the world. And if you can help people understand money at an early age, the impact of it is more meaningful than at a later age. And of course, as a physician, there's certain windows of opportunity where they can choose to make, you know, good or bad financial decisions. Yes. And being there during, I think, the most important transition, which is from residency to practice, is critically important to get them set on the right track. And so I think the more people we can reach out to before they've already got their lifestyle set, the more impact, you know, that we can have. You said that word, that lifestyle, right? <laughs> right. So we're right. definitely going to explore that. I'm kind of curious if you have a personal or professional story about just exploring a little more why you focus on physicians and dentists. I mean, you mentioned a little bit about just naturally, organically, the exposure to them. What's it like for you growing up, you know, with money or I don't know, how did you learn about management of money or impact of financial decisions? I saw my parents and they were, they were good money role models for me. I think that's something as a financial advisor that people need to understand, you know, about their clients is, you know, what was their upbringing like, you know, with money. And both my parents were business owners. My dad ran an insurance agency. My mom had an antique store in rural Iowa. Wow. For perspective, it was, I grew up in like 1,500 people in my town and 56 people in my high school class. What? 56? Yeah. And, and, and the tallest buildings were the Catholic Church and the co-op. Wow. So for those of you from rural America, you'll understand exactly, you know, the kind of town I'm talking about. Being business owners, my parents were able to attend all of the events, you know, that I was at as a kid and had their own, made their own decisions about those things. And I remember him talking about funding, you know, my dad funded like a, a Keo plan, which they really don't set up much you know, anymore. And my mom invested in stocks because her grandfather was a finance professor at the University of Dubuque for a long time. And I saw we didn't make a lot of money, but we were able to do things you know, that maybe other families weren't. But I really didn't understand how money worked. And I don't think most of us do. Right. We, we, right. we think, you know, we earn it, we spend it. But yeah, right. this is where your expertise is so helpful for physicians. And, and a concept that I want people to, to understand with money, it's the compound interest is amazing. And I said earlier, Einstein said it was the eighth wonder of the world. It allows you to earn money on money and allows you to stop trading your hours for dollars because your money will make money regardless of if you're working. And so. OK, that's a concept that a lot of us may not understand. Yeah. Say that again. So how do you compound? How does money compound? For example, you know, the, the compounding that most people are aware of now is the, the wrong kind. It's the compound interest on debt. Okay. With student loans and mortgages and, and those kinds of things. Yes. And, you know, if, if you've got a $500,000 mortgage at 5% interest, that's 25000 of interest that you're paying on that loan. Right. The same if you have $500,000 invested and it makes 5%, you made $25,000. Ah, so sounds like we want compounding based on solid savings. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I know you're passionate about educating people about debt management, and we'll explore that in a little bit. Compound interest is hugely important. And the earlier you start, um, it makes an enormous difference for people in the long run. So, you know, since our audience, you know, are savvy and nowadays podcasts are really amazing, right? You can listen to a variety of them. I'm personally aware, and I know you are, of a podcast called White Coat Investors. I would like to ask you to comment for our audience the difference between our intent today and what's different than some of the content that people may find on these wealth management podcasts. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think White Coat Investor does a great job getting information out to physicians. Their information is typically very is relevant, it's impactful. The difference between, you know, what we're going to talk about today and say what my role is, you know, for clients might be similar to a physician and a patient. You know, I, I find if you really want to get quality medical advice, 
you don't get it from a blog or an online site. You make an appointment with your doctor and, and you go in and it's best done in the you know, in a patient-doctor relationship. And I think for complex things, for holding people accountable, and that's really what a financial advisor does a lot, is it's not just you know, helping understand a situation, it's actually helping people take action. Yes, I can say that from a personal experience, 100%. Right. And so I, I think complex financial discussions, you know, the emotions of money, the backgrounds, really getting to know someone, it's best done you know, with a financial advisor client relationship where we learn to know that person over years and understand you know, their emotional attachments to money, what things stress them out, what things don't, what their goals are, what their dreams are. Do they want to leave a legacy or not? How do they envision retirement? Do they want to take their kids on and grandkids on cruises, do they not? What And you can't get that from a, a blog. So I think you know a white coat investor does a great job of getting information out. But as far as actually applying it individually to people and in alignment with their financial goals, I think that's hard to do without someone being an intermediary there. Yeah, I really, I really like how you share that. Frankly, I know you know I've recently launched a coaching business, right? My observation, personal experience is exactly that. We have incredible physicians, surgeons, you know, people in the healthcare field. Everybody knows burnout is, you know, just keeps climbing. The fact is, cognitively, you can hear content and information that makes sense. Everyone's fried, busy. I find that in general, humans don't typically gravitate towards something that they haven't mapped. It's just uncomfortable for them or they don't have enough information. And that's not everyone, right? I certainly have known colleagues who are very savvy, but I can tell you, my husband and I, we're blessed, right? If we didn't have experts helping to guide us, I was so busy. Why would I like, oh, let me make an appointment with myself on Friday afternoon to manage my wealth, <laughs> right. you know, to understand. And yeah, definitely. Hey, can you tell me a little bit about what percentage of your clients are doctors and what about their practice settings? I'm curious about that. Doctors, if we're including, you know, the, the, a big part of what we do is also in the dental space. So we've got a large operation that's with orthodontists and endodontists and oral surgeons and ENT doctors. About 90% of our practice is in the medical space. Okay. But are they in private practice, academics? I was wondering if there's a difference, you know, primary care specialists. There's not a lot that are in academics, but there are some, you know, they're in academics. Um, we've got a lot in private practice, but then a lot of like large groups, because we, we've, we've seen the consolidation you know, in medicine where it, it, just with scale. So we, we don't see a lot of the, you know, the individual ENT doc or solo practitioners do anymore. And so that was the case 25, 30 years ago more when I started, but not so much now. So I've seen a significant erosion in the number of physicians that are self-employed or parts of independent groups, and now they're employees. And I think that's part of the issue that we're seeing now in some of the burnout is groups are not physician run right. anymore. And, and money is a driving factor in that. And they're expected to produce more RVUs and less time. And that impacts kind of their oh, ability. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. You're speaking my language now. <laughs> <laughs> no, not the RVUs. They got to you too, Marshall. Right. Come on. Right. And so the bigger the group, I think people are, they kind of feel like they're losing the ability to influence the direction of the practice like they used to. And I think that's been stressful for a lot of physicians. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, I would think that all the more reason physicians should work with a financial advisor, right? I mean, whether you educate them as a group together or when individually to take action, because everybody's situation obviously has some variation, but right. everybody deserves protection. Oh, one question. I'm very curious about, have you observed any 
sex differences. You know, my daughter taught me the difference between sex and gender. Are more of your clients male versus female or pretty much the same? Because I'm curious about just... Yeah, it's a pretty even split, you know, I would say. I, in fact, I think now, I, I know dental school and I think medical as well, there's more females in training than there are males right now, which absolutely was not the case, you know, 30 years ago. Yes, but unfortunately, we are seeing there's still a gap in surgical subspecialties, right? Like maybe in primary care, pediatrics, you're right. You're absolutely right about the 50 and over percent of medical students being um, female. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. You know me. We recently reconnected. I was really excited to connect with you again. And I've been working a lot in increasing awareness and is hopefully inspiring action about increasing well-being, right? I really believe in psychological safety for physicians, and that comes in all forms. So I want to shift a little bit and talk about the intersection between a physician experience or risk of burnout and their financial reality, right? So let's kind of talk about that. Can I ask you, and this is generally after working over a couple decades with physicians, you know, what are they sharing with you? You know, what are their realities? What, where have they made the bad choices and you're helping to get them back on track? Fortunately, I mean, a lot of my long-term clients, I met them early enough where we hopefully avoided some of the pitfalls, you know, that we see physicians you know, run into. There's definitely that delayed gratification side of things. The psychology side of things, you know, I tend to find that physicians that are financially stressed, um, are more subject to feeling stressed at work as well. Interesting. For example, you know, I was just talking with a specialist the other day and he was referencing that they're talking about maybe 20% cuts, you know, for Medicare yesterday for their specialty. And fortunately, this particular client of mine has significant margin in life. And so we'll probably need to back the savings down, but there's no backing the house down, moving the kids, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I think that's where it gets real dangerous is is if someone's not operating with financial margin in their life and there is a cut to reimbursements or compensation reduction, all of a sudden it's like we're, they've living on everything. Where does that money go? And, and so we really stress when someone's coming out of residency to pretend that 20% of their paycheck they're not getting and use it to make extra debt payments, use it to save. But aside from being financially prudent, it builds margin, which reduces stress, which is a big deal. Okay, this is excellent. Let's do this. You know, I'm based on what you're saying. Let's go back to the beginning, right? Let me ask you, what is the average debt that your clients have by the end of training, whether it's residency or fellowship? Yeah, it varies depending on what school. Of course. Is there a range or in general average? 200 to 400,000. 400,000. Again, this isn't relevant on the physician side, but on the dental side, a lot are paid residencies. And so we're seeing some people coming out with five or 600,000, maybe to be an orthodontist or something along those lines. Oh, my goodness. Right. And yeah. <laughs> so this is something that I have to admit, if I look back at my educational journey or any part during my career, there was no formal curriculum on debt management. Right. Right. And this is how sometimes if they didn't have great guidance, this is where you can make some bad decisions. It's just ridiculous to think about how to climb out of that. Let me ask this question. Are there one or two greatest risk factors that you would tell a physician or a dentist 
for financial challenges that increase their burnout. I mean, I know you've alluded to it. I want to talk a little bit about your debt. Let's just build on that. If you're owing 400000 like what is happening and how I think about that versus maybe a disconnect to my new lifestyle when I finish training or how I get stuck in that place, right? Now I got to spend the rest of my life just <laughs> ah, crank and churn and get those RVUs so I can... I think one mistake people make even as early as medical school in particular in residency, is not understanding the economics of the decisions that they're making. Okay. For example, you can't go out and take out $400,000 of student loans if your expected income is going to be $200,000. The math isn't going to work on that if they want to be able to pay that off in a reasonable period of time and have a, a nice lifestyle. There's just not enough money to go around there. So if you're going to take out $400,000 of student loans, I'd like to see an income at least equivalent to that, you know, within the first couple of years of practice to allow for a, a decent lifestyle and a good debt elimination plan. We don't see this as much in, in medicine, and it's gotten a little bit weird now, too, with the public student loan forgiveness options and things where, which have been clarified lately, where some of these loans are actually getting, you know, forgiven. But in general, it's taking out too much debt to then not understand where the end game is economically. And, and in, in medicine, there's significant ranges from primary care to neurosurgery to orthopedic surgery to emergency medicine to right. ENT. You know, there, right. There's, you know, right, right. There's significant ranges of income, but yet the, the cost to get educated is the same. You know, that that's a great point. I have to be honest, yesterday, you know, this year, because of the not practicing, but I'm passionate about students, I still teach at the med school. So yesterday, it was just so inspirational to be with the first year students, right? In the cadaver lab, teaching anatomy. But, you know, for the last decade, as a advisor to helping those who are interested match into ENT, for example, I can tell you our, our training experience is encouraging, helping students pursue the field of their dreams. At no point do we talk about the ratio of the debt and the economics, right? Because like you can understand in a theoretical perfect world, you should choose to pursue the subspecialty or career that you're passionate about. But I guess what I'm hearing you say is not that it's the sole factor, but perhaps they also can benefit as early as in medical school when they're making that decision third year right. to kind of look at that financial outlook and where they are. Right. Is that right? Correct. Wow. Boy, we should bring you into med schools all over. <laughs> but then I don't know. Then everyone's going to be a surgeon. No, I'm just kidding. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you also referenced you know, what are the other risk factors. And I think the biggest one that I see is physicians get out. And we talked a little about delayed gratification. Yes, I want to go there. And they build their life, what kind of house they want and car they want and all those types of things before actually figuring out what's most important to them financially. And so, so the analogy that I like to use with my clients is envision like a five gallon glass container and the picture that I've got some, you know, some six inch rocks, you know, some pebbles, some sand and water. If I put in the big rocks first, sprinkle the pebbles in, the sand in, filters down around the pebbles and rocks and the water, everything fits fine. If I put in the water, followed by the sand, followed by the pebbles, followed by the big rocks, the big rocks don't fit. And generally when you ask people in life, what are their life goals? What's most important to them? They don't say, I want to own a Tesla. I want to own a million dollar home. They're like, well, I would like to be financially independent at a certain time. There's a lake home that I would like to purchase for our family. I'd like to get my student loans paid off in 10 years. Well, if those are your most important things, along with maybe funding college, figure out what those costs 
First, understand the cost of taxes, which is another thing a lot of people don't understand because residency taxes are not practicing taxes because of the, the way the tax system yes. works for the more you make, the more you pay. That's right. And put those, put those big rocks in first and then back into the mortgage, back into the car with what's left over. And the freeing experience of knowing that you're going on vacation and college is, is taking care of for my kids. I'm doing well there. I'm paying off my student loans. I'm on track for retirement and I've got money left in my pocket. Enjoy vacation. Spend the money with you know, as you want. If you don't know if you're on track for those things, spending the same dollar can be anxiety provoking without a plan and freeing with a plan. And so I think it's never, it's not aligning your goals with your money. And that's really what we try to help people do is understand where they are, you know, in their journey. And I always like to say a goal without a plan is just a wish. And I find a lot of physicians are wishing for things, but they're not actually taking the steps necessary to accomplish those. They know what they need to do, but they're not actually doing them. That makes sense to me, right? The reason I invited you on this podcast and the reason I truly believe this is still a huge gap, it's just that we don't have a standardized formal education, not just about any specialty, about physicians at large in the United States, right? Physicians, hardworking as they are, harder than ever, they just are kind of spend all their energy being competitive just to get into med school competitive to get into residency. They're just grateful they matched, right? And then they train, and then it's this deferred, you know, delay gratification. And then I finally made it. And I want to go back to talking about, well, why do we physicians, some of them make bad choices and pick the wrong rocks? I mean, based on that analogy, right? Right. The 12,000 square foot home and the Tesla, that may be the big rocks, right? Right. Instead of the other big, we just have the wrong rocks, right? Correct. So, but I want to say this, though. I'm going to, it may sound like I'm defending physicians, but I can speak for myself. No, I don't have a 12,000 square foot home. We lease, you know, Mazdas. We're beyond blessed. But I will say this. Well, for us, at least, when you're well into like late 20s, 30s, you've given up holidays. You're on call. You're enduring trauma and stress. And there's like no time for life. And your friends who are not in healthcare, a lot of them, right? They're partying, right. They're, they're traveling, they're doing all kinds of stuff. I have to admit, you know, and then for the females in particular, right? More at risk for infertility, miscarriage. I, I got to tell you, I have learned, you know, at 52, I can admit, I have very odd sometimes emotions associated with spending. The harder I work, the more it was hey, when I go on vacation, I deserve, right? Or this notion of I deserve because look how much I've suffered. I think my goal for the podcast is, ah, we recognize you've suffered, but there's a way to suffer well without making these decisions that put you in the worst place, right? When you already start out with this massive debt. Right. It's aligning your money with your goals. And that's the question. I mean, it's, I never tell people don't spend money, but we will let them know if they've told us what their big rocks are and they're making decisions that are not going to allow them to accomplish those things. It's our responsibility, you know, to, to let them know. And another question that I, I like to ask people is how much do you enjoy your work? Cause that influences burnout, that influences recommendations. If someone's inclined to work until 65 versus they want to make a bunch of money and retire at 50, right. those are two completely different plans and, and different things that we need to focus on. And so one is kind of the, the working to live plan and the other one is living to work. You know, and which one do you want? Yeah, definitely. So one thing I also had 
learned, you know, it's just people place value differently, right? Even in my own marriage, you know, I rather spend more on vacation. My husband, my spouse may prefer to spend it on high-tech video audio equipment. Do you know what I mean? So I often find as adults too, it's not just the individual, right? So because there's, if you're in a relationship, there's a family, there's a couple, there's also some reconciliation, right? I'm lucky that, you know, Dave and I, work together with the financial advisor. Every decision we make is a shared decision, including both of our perspectives. So awesome. Can I ask you, what are some success or even heartbreaking stories that you can share about generality, smart choices versus bad choices, and the impact of bad choices and their loved ones? Anything in general that yeah, I mean, that, that really gets into, we haven't touched upon much, the, the risk management space. Ah, risk management. Tell us more. That's where I see lack of making decisions can have a dramatic impact on the people that you love. Fortunately, we've had heartbreaking success stories more. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm happy to hear some examples, or can you be a little more concrete about that? For example, I've got a couple of clients right now that are disabled. They're able to live life just fine, but due to neck issues or hand issues or low back issues, they're just dealing with chronic pain. Right. Like me. Yeah. And they've been able to exit their businesses or sell their businesses. And we had them on track to be financially independent in their mid-50s. And these things are happening in their early 50s. But with the addition of their significant disability insurance benefits, their retirements are actually far better than we ever planned them to be because we don't actually need to touch their investments till they're 67 and their benefits stop and they're going to get an indexed benefit, you know, to that. So what would have made things really challenging for them, a loss of their income at 52 and they weren't going to be financially independent for four or five more years has turned into a far better scenario than we ever thought because they're actually going to continue to get a nice income until they're 67. Plus they've already got the assets that we were planning on tapping, you know, in their mid fifties and it's nice to see someone because it's, it's emotional enough having to give up something that's been such a part of them. Oh, I can relate to that. Yeah. Talk about identity loss. Yep. Let alone then have to take a pay cut and try to figure out what you're going to do and what's going to, are you going to go back to work somewhere else? How does that work? And so it, and I've seen the same you know, on the life insurance you know, side mm-hmm. of things. Uh, yep. I, I, unfortunately, you know, I was back in my office um, in Minneapolis and I had, I had a meeting with a client I've known for a long, long time. And She's got stage four cancer. Oh. And the the point of the meeting was just to talk about what the world might look like you know, when she's not there. And unfortunately, I, I, I've had a number of those meetings and there are tears shed, but to be able to have someone know that, go ahead and fight the cancer. Family's going to be fine, win or lose. You've done your job financially. Kids can stay in the schools. Family can keep the house. No one needs to go back to work. You're fine. Focus on what you need to focus on right now. You took care of the money side of things. And the, the tears that are shed, the hugs that are had in that, that, that's very rewarding and not the side of financial planning that people see. Really why I do this, I think that's where you make a huge impact. Accumulating wealth slowly is important, but protecting people in the event of something not going their way is is really, really impactful. Oh, Marsha, what you just said is really incredibly powerful. So I want to take a second and say that this is why I want you on the show, because I know your heart. I know you deeply care. 
they're not just your clients. I mean, you protect them like your family members. And that aligns with my passion and commitment, right? It's that we going through training and taking care of the world, right? The sick, the children, their families, everybody. We're not experts on how to protect ourselves, whether it's disability, litigation, right? Financial. And if you're lucky and you already have some of these experts that are almost like your professional coaches in all different domains, then great. But if you don't, we've been in denial that we're human too, right? And I am much more aware after going through my own disability, as you know, what it took to learn these lessons and insights. And in many ways, I see that we can save others or protect them on the front end, as you've alluded to throughout this podcast. So um, let me ask this way. Yes, ideally, everybody should have an incredible advisor and all these plans early in training. So what if one of our listeners, you know, physicians, surgeons, what if they're at a bad place right now? I mean, is it too late to get back on track or get help? I don't know if it's ever too late. The younger you are, the easier it is to get back on track. You know, the older, a little bit harder it is because you've just exhausted more of your working years or you end up working a bit longer. But those are discussions. It's just you got to figure out what are the economic realities of the situation you find yourself in and, and what are the best steps forward to to improve upon the situation. And I find my role in those times, if someone's in a bad situation, is not to pretend that it's a good situation or maybe easily solvable if it's going to require some hard work. Just like a physician's job is not to tell someone that their health is great if it's not. You know, it's, it's not to be the best friend of my client. It's to be a professional advisor. Just like you wouldn't tell someone that they're fine if their health isn't fine. And, and you'd come up with a treatment plan. And, and that's the same way you know, I approach it. And again, some of those discussions can be difficult, but there's always a solution. It might, it might not be what they want to hear. That's right. But, <laughs> that's, you know. that's, that, yeah, I think most physicians listening would tell you, yep, right? Nobody wants to hear, I need to exercise and eat well and sleep. Right. Stop binge watching TV all night. Yeah. Like my kid, when he fell out of the uh. tree and broke his wrist, he came over and I looked at it. I, I'm not a doctor. And I'm like, Max, your wrist is broken. He's like, I don't want it to be broken. I'm like, well, don't think it's your choice at this point, buddy. <laughs> We're going to the emergency room. I often wonder about my fellow physician's inner voice. I've had a lot of time this year with some space and time to reflect. So when one is faced with financial decision that may conflict with their, you know, reality, desire to spend or keep the same lifestyle versus address whatever their issues are, what do you hope our listeners will say to themselves to ask the right questions? You know, these are high-functioning people right? So sometimes you just have a visceral reaction. You actually know what the right thing is to do, but you don't want to, or you suppress it. So I don't know, how, how do we get folks to kind of listen to that gut, or as soon as something's wrong, get, get some professional guidance or help or, you know? My first answer is hopefully by starting early enough, we don't get to that stage. I'm a huge believer in just automating savings, treating your retirement, treating college, treating your debt like a bill, you know, and, and just automatically taking money so that the money that is sitting in your account can be spent on whatever you want to spend it on. And to micromanage that surplus, I don't care if people want to go to Starbucks every day and buy two coffees. If their big goals are taken care of, that's not how we fix problems. I know people like to use that analogy, but generally someone's world doesn't come down to one cup of coffee at Starbucks a day for $1,800 a year. It's usually a much bigger 
you know, issues if they're, they're a problem. So my answer to that, Julie, would be if they don't know where they are on the map at that point in time, then get some help. I mean, if it's like, well, I'd like to buy this car, I'd like to upgrade this house. Well, do you know what the ripple effect of that is? Do you even know where you are in relation to your other goals? What is most important to you? Because some people, and I would be guilty of this, I've got a financial plan that I'm executing on and it looks good, but I still have anxiety about spending money on things that I don't need, but I want, even though it won't impact my, my big goals. I still don't like to spend money. So money's a very multifaceted thing, the logical or illogical. You know, it really is. And this year I've been humbled, you know, look, not giving up my title, right? The salary, everything I work my whole life for so I can reclaim my health. And now my husband's looking for another job. I mean, this is real, right? And for a surgeon, I mean, come on, that it's, it's, it's really devastating, right? But you know what's been the gift in all of it? Again, we're blessed and we didn't have to give up the house and we didn't have to because thankfully I did all those things you mentioned (laughs) along the way, right? But I will say small things, learning how to get by with less. I think I learned that when you know you make a certain amount, we all know this, you spend to whatever. Um, Recently, I met someone, God, I would love to connect you. This gentleman is an expert in different than what you do, but he, he works with, let's say, elite athletes. And he built a platform where it makes it all visible. Because I think when people can't see it, you don't feel how much you're spending and swiping and putting on the credit card, right? Right. So when I saw this platform, it was amazing. It's transparent. But the one thing he said that I totally think is a parallel for physicians and medical students and trainees is he said to me, you know, I have these young professional, you pick a sport, soccer player. They're making $2 million a year. At the, they're 22, 23 years old. So to them, it's like, I'm, I'm good. Except they didn't realize they're spending $4 million a year, right? He's passionate, just like you are, to give them that information on the front. Show them a graph that at this rate of expenditure, regardless of what you're currently making or what you think you're going to make five years from now, you are going to go broke at this time, <laughs> at this age. And seeing that simple graph, the line graph, was very powerful. And I remember telling him, God, I wish we had this for trainees, right? Let me plot this out for you. Is your spouse going to be at home? Is your spouse also a professional. And also, I think two professional or a lot of physicians are dual physician marriages, right? So now you can say, hey, we got plenty of income. But I can see how then it's easy to overspend or not do these things that will protect them. A simple analogy that just kind of a visual that I I think is a good reference point for physicians, especially as they get further along, you in their careers. And I talk about it with my children and I say, you know, an iceberg, I said, a very small portion of the iceberg actually sticks out above the water that you can see. I said, but they're very stable. It's really hard to tip over a big iceberg because there's so much underwater. And I said, that's the way that I want my clients' financial situations to be. That's the way I want our financial situation to be. Wealth can pop out in certain spots, but if all the wealth is on the surface for everybody to see and there's nothing below it, it's a very unstable situation. And that tends to lead to stress and anxiety, burnout. And so I, I think that's kind of a good visual for people. They're looking at their own situation. What's your iceberg look like? 
Yeah, well, that's that's a good one. I don't want to be the Titanic, that's for <laughs> sure. Okay, so let's shift a little bit. You know, um, when I am involved in conversations about burnout, well-being, we really care about the system, right? System-based issues. So can I shift and ask you, what do you, what do you think our audience should know about system and institutional strategies? Sure. I think most physicians do a pretty good job of taking care of the basic ones, you know, max funding the 401k plan, making sure at the minimum, even to begin with, if you got a bunch of debt, make sure you're funding it at least up to the matching contribution. Maybe if you put in 6%, your employer gives you three. I mean, even if you have debt, it makes sense to, to do that and get that compound interest working for you. Make sure you're properly enrolled in, you know, the, the life and disability you know, coverage. Um, some of them offer buy-up coverage, you know, as well on the disability to buy up from 10000 a month to 15000 a month. In, you know, in general, those are typically good things, you know, to do, or at least, you know, to review those options. Some missed, missed things, I think, might be just some of the dependent care spending options and things like that to run, like, daycare costs, you know, at least up to the, the IRS limit through that, so at least can turn some of your daycare costs pre-tax. But I know some physicians are just so busy, they don't necessarily enroll, you know, in some of those, you know, types of things. And yeah, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I made it a point when I was so engaged and involved trying to help busy doctors just realize, hey, it's open enrollment. <laughs> All right. these hundreds of emails that, you know, other people understand better about. It was very obvious to me that physicians will sacrifice every second of their time for patient care, right, in the name of their profession. It's just so much easier to work harder than to take the time and go, what is that? Right. I don't understand it. And sometimes it's difficult. In their defense, I was very much a vocal about where. I can't even navigate the employer website to figure out where the information is. And if it's not easy and if I have to right search for it, I am not going to make five minutes to go through and figure out who I need to call. What, what am I doing? So I will say that I'm very grateful. For example, something small, the financial advisor we have, the relationship we've had for a decade, he comes to the house. He knows I'm not available between eight and five, you know, and that personal quarterly review, understanding your numbers, right? You're right. You brought it up. It's like going to the doctor and knowing where your cholesterol is. How do you even start to have a plan to address your cholesterol if you don't even know? I'm somebody that if it's not in front of me, how much do I have in savings? What bucket? Where's the loan? Where's our mortgage now? What's going on? Right. You know, so yeah. Okay. How about this question? Remember I said, no offense, financial advisors seem like a dime a dozen. Right. How do you look for a great one who is physician centric? Okay. Not just because you think you're going to manage some future wealth we're going to have. I want to be clear. But really, are there certain credentials, expertise? Are there red flags that should tell you to run away from? We actually had one horrible experience, and, and I just, I can see why a lot, of, I've spoken to physicians who are afraid. They want to put their money in the mattress, you know? Unfortunately, you know, to be a financial advisor, you can call yourself a financial advisor by passing a couple exams. There's not four years of medical school and residency and, and, and things that you have to be a physician. There are a lot of professional designations, CFP, CLU, CHFC, you know, there, there's other ones, you know, as well. Those are a couple big ones, you know, that, that come to mind. Certify financial planner. Oh, this is like for the doctors, the MD, FACS. <laughs> and yeah, those, those kinds yeah. of things. And, and, I, okay. and I'm not going to endorse one over another, I think. And I know some very good advisors that 
don't have any initials because a lot of what we learn, I'm a specialist, you know, let's say in the, the medical and dental consulting side, but there's no exam for that. There's no certification. It's all experience, isn't it? it it's just experience of thousands and thousands of meetings. And someone said to me the first time, my AR is $800,000. I'm like, I go, oh, okay. I'm, early on, I'm like, what's AR? I'm like, go back, accounts receivable. Okay, now I know what AR is. It, it, what, someone starts talking about RVU, what's an R, it's a relative value unit. Oh, okay. But there's no exam you know, for that kind of thing. So I think if, as a physician, you might just want to have some, you know, I, I think a general conversation with a financial advisor will tell you if they know anything about a, a typical question, you know, that I think if you're working with physicians, you know, asset protection tends to be a concern. And, you know, states like Florida, you know, have good asset protection laws protecting retirees where other states don't. And if you're a financial advisor says, I work with physicians in the state of Minnesota or Iowa, and they specialize, and they should darn well know that asset protection in the event of a lawsuit is a concern for physicians and be intimately aware of what assets are protected and not protected. And if they don't know that, you know, that would be a bit of a, well, do you just say you work with physicians, but you maybe don't? No, that's a great point because I went through, this was devastating for me, a litigation case, right? From 2013 to 16, I'm already living in Florida. The lawsuit originated in Missouri. And what you said completely resonates with me. Thank goodness, you know, my decade spent in Kansas, it was mandated the physicians live on the Kansas state side, right? Because Kansas City is Kansas, Missouri. And that saved us. I was never going to lose my house. It was explained to me why it was a protection. So Correct. you're right is that a great financial advisor isn't just knowledgeable about money. They understand the impact of disability, life insurance, legal protection. That is what I hope our audience understands, right? Instead of feeling like all these people want to be a part of your life. You, you get messages, you get LinkedIn because, oh, you're going to be a surgeon. You're going to have a certain level of income, right? And sometimes it's natural to feel a little bit untrusting because you don't know who the heck these people are that all of a sudden show interest in you. And in a financial advisor, we clearly don't replace lawyers nor do we breach into that of course. space. And we always recommend people have good legal representation and get their estates squared away and contracts reviewed and, you know, and those kinds of things as well. But it's just a holistic understanding of the concerns that physicians would have and being able to address those and refer to the proper people to make sure that they're fully taken care of. Yeah. And this is the basis of my physician coaching business that I launch is finally realizing after enduring all kinds of stuff and experiences that have been, you know, not all positive, right? I mean, as bad as near PTSD from litigation and what it does to you, right? For me, it's like, oh my goodness, I know we're not professional athletes and I'm not signing a 20 million contract with Nike, right? But at the same time, realizing, wow, we, we are very special group of people that are highly trained and yet our function in society intersects with so many other expertise areas that we don't know, but we need them surrounding us. I call it bubble wrapping a physician so that it's not about us as humans being perfect. It's the fact that we hurt too. And there's no reason for the sacrifices and how hard we work. We should be at such risk. And so do our families. And that's where um, I bet Man, your clients are lucky to, to have you. Okay, I'm going to shift a little bit. This, this, this I'm just asking because I want to know. Let's talk about divorce and impact of that because I mentioned earlier whether a lot of physicians are dual physician marriages because they met in med school, 
I bet dentists too, probably, but that's double the debt, right? And even with two earners, I guess any tips and thoughts about, because if you're in trainings, you may be married or may not be or have a fiance or how does financial well-being come into dealing with that? There's no good way really to get divorced. I mean, it's just economically generally a pretty bad situation overall. And I've seen some divorces get very nasty where, you know, they end up fighting over certain things and spend hundreds, thousands of dollars on legal fees on top of splitting assets, you know, and things. And so I just try to tell people to try to keep the the controllable costs down as much as possible and know that you're not going to probably like the results of it in the end. Everyone's probably going to feel like they didn't get a good deal. And that's generally how divorces work. It doesn't matter the cause, how assets get divided. And so, I mean, the best thing is just not get divorced, but obviously divorces happen and they happen pretty frequently. So we're dealing with this stuff on a very regular basis. I can't think of too many divorces that ended. I'm like, well, that was a really good financial situation for both, you know, to end it. It's always going to be pretty painful, but the legal fees are the things that are a little bit controllable. And to an extent, understand what you're disagreeing on and the economics of it. It doesn't make sense to fight over it and maybe put some pride aside and save yourself some money. But I, I know that's easy for me to say, and I'm not the one in the middle of a heated divorce. So I, I don't pass any judgment on divorces. It's just, sure. it's a reality of life and it's never really a good thing. And if you're getting remarried, you know, say you're getting remarried for a second time, prenuptial agreements and things obviously would be something we would recommend for practicing physicians who've been in, in just protecting some assets. And that gets into more the legal side of things and having a good lawyer, you know, and again, so I'm not going to get into that. You're right. I mean, there, there's certainly, there's a lot of suffering to go around <laughs> for physicians, whether it's um, divorce or they're no better protected than the rest of the population, right? And, and the rates are high. I want to come back to the trainees. That's where, you know, you're passionate and trying to set them up. So in case some of our listeners are younger, not yet married, it's like, I don't need financial advisor now. You know, I don't need that till I'm married or have a family. What would you say? I mean, do can people start or should they start financial planning when they're single? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's no there's no guarantee that someone gets married and you're only responsible you know, for yourself. So financial planning is pretty straightforward when you're younger. I, I get a lot. Well, I don't I don't need to talk with a professional because I've got a bunch of debt that I'm paying off, which in, maybe you're not investing a lot at that point in time. Maybe we're not building you know, significant wealth. But do you understand the uh, you know, the options for debt? Are you doing it in the proper order? What are you doing on the risk management side of things? Just because you're not married doesn't mean that in the event of a disability that your income isn't going to go down. And most people don't want to take a huge pay cut in the event that they can't work. So it's thinking about where do you want to be? So with disability policies, for example, we don't write large policies on residents. You can, it's kind of like Lego blocks. You start with a chunk of coverage and then you can add a bunch of blocks later. And so you can start with a small policy and make it you know, meaningfully bigger once income you know, pops up. And those policies are going to be much less expensive than a full-fledged practicing you know, partner policy or whatever it might be, because that's protecting a larger income. But with disability coverage, if your health changes, it can be really hard to get coverage. If you have a poor driving record, it can be hard to get coverage. There's a lot of things that life insurance is quite a bit easier to get than disability but they'll exclude things in disability. That is such an important topic. I'm so excited. I have to admit, we're actually, I have an episode focused on disability coming up. 
Thank you for sharing that. As we're nearing the end of our episode, I want to ask you, because I think you and I both share this passion about standardizing, right? Where are the things that really can apply to all trainees? It doesn't matter what specialty you're in. You know, we talk about that checklist concept. I'm curious, you know, what, what do you recommend that training programs or if you were working with a department, you know, a group of residents or institutional support, like what should be done during residency year? Just what's what's on the, the basics that you recommend to a resident? As a resident, you know, we've got a checklist, you know, that we have, and, and I, I think I've shared it with you. But in residency, it would include the simple things, you know, just understanding your debt, trying to build some sort of an emergency reserve, you know, just for in case something happens, you've got a little bit of cash on hand. It would include you know, protecting your income, getting disability insurance, maybe an inexpensive term life policy. Maybe if a spouse is working or you've got a little extra cash flow, maybe funding a Roth IRA, you know, which is a nice option you know, in residency. Typically, we're not real focused on saving a lot of money in residency. If you can come out in a close to the same situation you went in, you know, we'll call that a victory. <laughs> I mean, even that, even that can be hard if the debt's you know, unsubsidized, accruing interest. You know, in residency, you can only do so much because the income is so limited relative to the you know the debt. You know, in a sixty thousand dollar income with three hundred thousand of debt, you just there's just not enough money to really make big progress. We just want to limit the damage. Where where the opportunities you know exist, and where I, I, is it that transition? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where programs could do a little bit better job of just having some educational materials on how do you manage that transition from residency you know, to practice. And as you're aware, I've published a couple of books, real life, you know, financial planning for the medical professional. And I've done one for physician or for dentists as well. And what is it called again? And where can our listeners find it? The book is real life financial planning for the new physician. And I co-authored it with another advisor, Todd Bramson, you know, in our Madison office, who's also works with a lot of physicians and it's available on Amazon. But for the most part, you know, I generally just hand it out, you know, to clients. It's almost like a, a full business card. Probably easiest to, you know, just order them from my office, but Okay, I'm going to need a signed copy, by the way. Okay, all right, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's about 120 pages and just designed for a, you know, a good airplane ride. It's, it's intentionally not super technical, kind of like listening to me today, the analogies and examples. It's not you know, hard and fast data. I like to explain things in stories and pictures, not necessarily numbers. So, I can't thank you enough. This has been wonderful. Every time I speak with you, I learn something. So as you wrap up, I'm going to give you the last word. Is there anything else that we haven't covered? that you would like our listeners, the physicians, to know? For those of you listening, the biggest advantage, I think, of talking with someone about finances is is just taking action. The financial world operates in the important but non-urgent category, and our lives are just one emergency after another from practice to home to picking a kid up to a concert to a vacation to a conference to whatever is going on to a to wedding. I mean, there, there's all sorts of things you know, that are going on. And so we're always going to be getting you know, to these things. We try to help people actually take action you know, on there. And, and it doesn't have to be me, any financial advisor. It's like hiring a coach or a personal trainer. You're more likely to go to the gym if there's someone there waiting for you than not. And so with financial advice, because it operates in that important but non-urgent, having kind of that strategic coach to make you address the things that you've stated are important but are not urgent can really help you take those steps. And I think I think that's the role of a financial advisor more than anything, more than being a great you know, person with money or investing or you know, great at dealing with insurance. It's just helping people take action on things 
to further their chances of accomplishing their goals and aligning their money with their life. And in short, I tell people, we help you have the best life you can with the money you have. And that can be different, you know, for everybody. Marshall, that's fantastic. You know, as I guess hosted a recent podcast about why physician coaching, I really, your analogies have been fabulous. That's how I think, you know, the, where the gap is, right? We've all been raised with mentors. There are people who taught us. They taught us how to operate. For me, they're teaching me about otolaryngology as a specialty. But frankly, when it comes to all these other incredibly critical domains of my profession, that's where I need coaches in all these other areas. So I love that. Well, thank you again for your time. And I hope our listeners have learned a great deal. And I know they can find you when they Google you and maybe look for your book. Well, thank you listeners for joining us today. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. We love feedback. Please reach out to us for topics, ideas, speakers, or if you ever want to come on the show. And also from a compliance standpoint, I will read the following. Separate from the financial plan and an advisor's role as financial planner, an advisor may recommend the purchase of specific investment or insurance products and accounts. These product recommendations are not part of the financial plan, and clients are under no obligation to follow them. Marshall is a registered representative and investment advisor representative of Securian Financial Services, Inc. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Securian Financial Services, Inc., member of FINRA, SIPC, North Star Resource Group is independently owned and operated. Gifford Financial is affiliated with North Star Resource Group. 5273446 slash DOFU. December 2022. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Ovijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.